you, you always bring up the stories that we've always heard about the adversity and we had an experience which wasn't good and and what probably defines someone or certainly you want to tell the next bit of the story which is this is what we did and we, we regrouped and we managed to do this, this and this, whatever that is. Um, so probably that is the, that's what we need to do now because like I said, many teams have, have been beat nine, we have. Um, we need to try and tell the story in a positive one that we showed character and showed real resolve. Um, and that's, that's, the main, that's the main drive now. And what's more, you'll be a Mason, I think, was how Scott Parker was going to end that uh, press conference there. Very big Mike Bassett vibes. Maybe three cheers for Ramirez as well at the end of that. But uh, a dreadful weekend for Bournemouth, ending with Scott Parker becoming the first Premier League manager to be sacked this season. Uh, joining me to break down that, look across all the rest of Match Day 4 and look ahead to Match Day 5. And we've even got a little bit of a sneak at the end of something for you at the end of the show as well. Duncan Alexander, Matt Furness alongside me on this cloudy overcast, beginning to feel a little bit more autumnal uh, day here in the UK. Thanks for watching. Didn't know we did weather reports. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's my great hope one day I'll get to do a weather forecast, I tell you that. Uh, but I tell you what, it's certainly black clouds glooming down at uh, Bournemouth. That's where I was trying to get yes. to with this. I see. Yeah, yeah. just jumped in before. I thought you, you were know, trying might... to make it feel like it's like November, so that Scott Parker <laughs> might think he hasn't been sacked in, in August, but, you know. Well, I tell you what, a man who wears a cardigan in August... Brave call, especially after this mm. August as well. But in the heat wave, he wore it during the heat wave. He must he stuck with character. it. Character, character, character building. Um, and unfortunately for Parker, you know, first managerial sacking of the season. My brave call that only four Premier League managers are going to get sacked this season. Very much looking in the mire uh, because four games in. Obviously, it's a slightly truncated uh, start with this World Cup winter coming up as well. But so it's not the first time a Premier League manager has been sacked after four games. Um, but in terms of actually earliness in a season, it's it's actually not that early compared to some other Premier League sackings. Yeah, Matt uh, kindly pulled together the, the numbers this morning and we put out an article uh, on the analyst. Um, and yeah, Parker's in there, in and around the top 10, but he's no Paul Sturrock. Um, you can see there, he, he went very early into 2004 um, yeah, it's uh, some some names you would expect to see there, I think, um, and then some that maybe people have forgotten. I mean, it's interesting to see how many Newcastle managers are in there. I mean, Newcastle don't hang around. I think Eddie Howe will, uh, you know, breathe a big sigh of relief if he can get to September this week and, uh, and still be in position. I think he probably will. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? When a manager gets sacked this early, you get a lot of people saying, well, it's too early in the season. But essentially if you don't think it's working then the earlier you do it the more the more time they have to turn it around and um yeah i think i mean part of me thinks if you lose nine nil you should automatically be sacked because it should be like a you know a trigger point in football but then ralph hassan has certainly shown that you can you can bounce back in in some ways but um yeah, it, it sounds like it wasn't really the 9-0 that did it. It's more of a disagreement in terms of recruitment and, and squad strength and stuff, um, you guess. Yeah, after the game, though, he pretty much said, we're, we're crap, so how can we come back from this? That wasn't mm. going to help with it. I think that was, that was the problem. We do, yeah, actually have, we, do, we do actually have the soundbite of Parker um, talking about the signings, which we might get to in a minute, but uh, we did put out as the tease for the show as well. But yeah, I, 
that's my reading of it. You basically can't turn around and say to your ownership in press conferences that we need to recruit more players and we're not going to be good enough at this standard and kind of expect to still be in the job. I think Dunk said that about us too, though, didn't he? Well, <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> especially, especially after I misnamed the show on a tweet earlier today. <laughs> that was the real point where we had problems. But yeah, Bournemouth, I mean... They, they came up last season. I'm not sure how much of that was down to Scott Parker. They had a very strong squad existing uh, from two years previously when they came down from the Premier League. Um, but it was always going to be an uphill task for them. I think the opening day win against Villa was a, a bit of a shock. It certainly was to me. But then having three games like he has done since then, City, Liverpool and... I can't remember who the third one was. Arsenal. Good, Arsenal, yeah. Um I mean, it's not going to get much tougher than that. So it kind of, it feels like it's harsh on Parker, but it's also quite a good time to bring in a new manager because you actually have those harder games out of the way, technically, um, and you might have an easier run there. Um, they, I think they, they've got a good chance of, of staying up if they get the right man in, but they don't want to do what teams like Watford did last season and bring in people who are quite obviously short-term appointments. They need someone... Who is going to get get him out of the trouble straight away? I think um, Sean Dyche could be a name maybe linked. He probably doesn't play the same style of football, style of football as Bournemouth are used to, um, but it, it could be a tactic to keep Bournemouth in the Premier League uh, in the short term over a season or so. But maybe not the right man in terms of tactics, but maybe the right man in terms of experience. I mean, I personally do think Bournemouth are going straight back down. I, I think I'm seeing them as very much now the Norwich Yo-Yo Club. They're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. It sounds like there's a new training ground along the way. Obviously, it's a stadium that needs potential expansion down there as well. That very much feels where the club's preference is right now. And yeah, it seems like Parker's like, we need to strengthen. The only way you can strengthen the Premier League these days really is to spend money. And if the board are diverting any money and ex excess funds, that is limited by the smaller stadium that they have there. It's not like you've got a 30,000-seat stadium that you're going to be pulling in the money with each week. Unfortunately, Parker has got great ambitions to be a, 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 certainly a higher manager in this league. He's not going to be able to keep a team up that's that's woefully um, been underinvested in. And, and that do... frustration must be even bigger when you see a team like Nottingham Forest bring in about 42 players. So I think that he probably then feels, well, Forrest are doing it. Why can't I be backed and get these players in? But it could be down to the Bournemouth, maybe Bournemouth chairman or ownership not trusting Parker to be that man with the money. I don't know. Yeah, that's a fair point, I think. I mean, we're in a slightly strange situation where, you know, people from other countries look at the Premier League and looking at the amount of money that teams are spending and it's true that certain clubs are, are spending big but you look at Leicester um, they haven't you know hardly bought anyone you look at Bournemouth and there are clubs that are having to really kind of you know cut their cloth I think and you and it's sort of little mini cycles in the league I think some clubs are you know really like look at Spurs who for years almost refused to sign anyone and now and now they really have so um yeah, like you said, Graham, I think Bournemouth might be looking for a, a slightly longer term thing. And yeah, it's, there's no point buying a load of players on big contracts uh, and still going down, which we've definitely seen happen in, in the Premier League and before. 
especially with how financial fair play plays out in the championship. But we don't need to talk about that with the team who are top of the championship and how they deal with uh, financial fair play. Uh, anything else from this week's action across the Premier League that caught your eye? I mean, we we went into last weekend talking about West Ham potentially being the, the current crisis club, but good victory for them means that they've probably lost that Mr. Mo- Mr. No- Mr. Noma for now. Um, try saying that one once you've had a few. Um, but uh, it's... Is it is someone stepping into that breach now that really we we should be looking at and going? Is time potentially ticking for them instead? The team they beat, Aston Villa. I think we we know they aren't the only crisis club. I think Leicester City obviously struggling at the moment, Everton etc. But Villa, at the moment under Gerrard, I mean since losing to West Ham last March, they played fifteen Premier League games. They've won twelve points from those games, uh, winning three of them, and two of those are against Norwich and Burnley. Um, so they've actually won, over that period, they've won two points fewer than Burnley, who were relegated and have played three <laughs> games less. Um, it's never a good sign. But, as we said, not the only club. They've won more than Wolves and Southampton over that period, um, but they have played a game more. The worry for Villa is, and we talk about Bournemouth playing those difficult teams in a short spell of time, the next two games for Villa are Arsenal and Man City. Um, and then the third game in that run is against Leicester City, fellow crisis club. So... The next three games, you, you feel actually Gerard could be under real pressure if, if they don't manage to win at least three points from those three games. Um, considering that he they've spent a fair bit of money, haven't they, Villa? I know they've had some uh, bad luck with Diego Carlos getting injured mm. uh, and 26 million on, but they have also spent a lot of money on players like um, Philip Coutinho, etc. this summer. After well, his Coutinho is an interesting one because I think a lot of Villa fans would much rather Emi Bandia was in the team and obviously at the moment he just keeps coming on and generally is better when he comes on and you know that that system that Gerard has the sort of Christmas tree very narrow it's not really creating that many chances as we saw in that XG map as well I think yeah it is um, you know he might be playing a Christmas tree but he might not be a manager at Christmas at this rate but um, but do you think Gerard is given more time because of his standing yeah. as a player? Yeah, I think so. And I think last season there was a weird thing where uh, Villa actually played quite well in a couple of big TV games. So like that, I think they played well against Manchester United and and uh, a couple of others. And I think people kind of thought, oh, yeah, Villa are doing quite well. But then in a lot of the kind of bread and butter games, they were they were losing. Um, so I think the Villa fans who obviously watch them week in, week out have, have probably seen, yeah, uh, the the more real uh, output from, from Gerrard's managerial career. And let's not forget... You know, Beal went to QPR in in the summer, and he obviously was you know part of the yeah. the brains behind the scenes. And and we've definitely seen examples in the past of you know football managers who lose their number twos. And you know, even someone like Brian Clough was never quite as good without Peter Taylor as he was with him. So um, yeah, it's Listen, quite quite concerning. If Villa lose those next two games against Arsenal and Man City, Gerrard has the same points per game ratio in the Premier League at Villa as Dean Smith did, one point one five. So He's hardly done spectacular there. And I know he did well at Rangers, but at that period, Celtic were... I know they've won a lot of titles in a row, but it felt like, actually, they were kind of ready... Rangers were ready to to take that crown, and he built a really good defensive side there. But how much can you gauge a manager's strengths when their only job is being a manager of an old firm team in in Scotland? I don't know too much yet about that. So I think... uh, yeah, it could be, he could be the next manager, I think, to go. 
maybe you should be the next manager of Dundee United, and then you can find out a bit more <laughs> about the sort of thing. <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't lose nine nil. <laughs> you wouldn't Bold. Go I think, I think it was something like 20, it was 27 goals in five games or something like that that Jack Ross has conceded at Dundee United, making his stay uh, very short and very sweet. There was I that great moment where it looked like... Look, out, Martin, yeah, well, they, they, I mean, that yeah. was the high point, and then it just went off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, not not been a good time for them, not been a good time for Jack Ross either. Um, not been a particularly good time for former Sunderland managers as well, with uh, Alex Neil obviously departing. Uh, Sunderland this week to take up the new role at Stoke City. Um, time where he tells he said he's not been backed by the board, but in the same week Sunderland go and sign a player from Paris Saint Germain. I mean that's pretty good backing of a board there, I think. But anyway, uh, that's not for us for one us to decide because the games are coming thick and fast this week in the Premier League. We've literally just finished off match day four and we're rolling in to match day five. And of course, the supercomputer has been out and about doing all its wonderful gigs, as you would expect. We always want, love to see... It's not been out and about. It'll be irresponsible letting it outside. Yeah. If it rained on it, it would damage it. But it's been it's been whirring fast, calculating a lot of games, definitely. So um, there's some good matches this, this midweek. Um, had to hastily edit the Bournemouth bit this morning. Um, what, <laughs> what has Scott Parker got up his sleeve? Um, don't know. <laughs> P45, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, let's have a little roll through some of the predictions for this week. I mean, there is some... I Duncan is the expert in talking to the supercomputer. I don't think I've ever seen it turn out a lower score than 3.4% for someone mm. over the past year and a half that we've got, what, year and a bit, we've got to know this computer intimately and very well. Um, but, yeah, pretty much writing off any hope of a Forest victory in that one on the road the, against Manchester. The supercomputer can't grasp how many signings Forest have made. It's just returning error. It can't be right, surely. <laughs> well, it, as we pointed out in the piece, um, you know, Nottingham Forest were the the club that brought the Harlan family to English football back in 1993 when they signed uh, Alfie Inga. They might regret that. I mean, there is talk maybe that Harlan might be rested for this one um, with Alvarez getting a run out, which would make sense because he hasn't got the most perfect injury record. You don't want to run him into the ground in August. But even if that happens, he could still come off the bench. And uh, yeah, I, I mused that Forrest uh, might might live to regret bringing you know, the Harlan family into, uh, into our orbit. I think it's also worth pointing out Newcastle there. I mean, our supercomputer won't factor in kind of financial strength and maybe recent signings. It's based on a lot of it based on power rankings, which obviously stem over many seasons. Um, so Newcastle's recent rise uh, to possibly into the top six this season, etc., probably isn't factored in, in full consideration there. So like my personal opinion, obviously I wouldn't like to go against the supercomputer is that Newcastle have a better chance than that at Anfield. This week, but yeah, but, but they've not won there since 1994, um, and in that period, sorry, Graham, probably stole that out of, out of your face. But um, <laughs> um, you know, they in that period they still have been, you know, like that includes the period when Newcastle were challenging for titles. So it is a is a bit of a bogey ground for them. Um, and you know, they have only won one game a season, and they did, did nearly lose to Wolves. So uh, I think the supercomputer is, uh, I, yeah, nine percent probably a little bit low, but I think. Um, you know, if Liverpool continue to create chances like they did on Saturday, then and to be fair, they did create a lot of chances in their other 
home game against Crystal Palace, even though they didn't win it. So, yeah, it should be a good game. And obviously that game has got a lot of Premier League history to it. Um, the famous 4-3. And then I remember Sky putting it on the following year, thinking it would end 4-3. And, and it actually did, which was uh, statistically quite annoying and unlikely. But no one does 4-3s anymore. It's all about 9 nils these days. Yeah, I was just thinking of it. It really is the Premier League game under floodlights, Liverpool versus Newcastle. Oh, lovely stuff to uh, maybe tune in for that one there. Another game I just want to bring up at the very bottom of that chart. And I, I was considering that this is a club that we've talked about, Brennan Rogers again. The fire is slightly warming up here. I didn't expect Scott Parker to fall in it as quickly as he did. But the, the managerial hot seat has been warming up to my side. And we have mentioned from early in the season that Brendan Rogers could be quite could be one of those people who's uh butt might be getting a little bit warm. Uh, and then our supercomputer turned around and said, well no, don't worry about it. Leicester are my favourites to beat Manchester United. Um now Leicester are creating chances. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um but I still can't I still just don't see this. I I just think this is quite comfortably Manchester United one or two nil, nothing really to write home about the pressure building on Leicester. Um, yeah, I, I, I was very surprised um, by the supercomputer's call. Here. I I wasn't, I don't think. Leicester have got a pretty good record against Manchester United. Obviously, they beat them 5-3 in that game. Um, and Di Maria scored that lovely little scoop chip goal. Um, they beat them 4-2 last season. They've got, it, again, this is a really sort of decent fixture year in, year out, I think, in the Premier League. These sort of two sides do tend to suit each other in terms of serving up a good game. You know, Manchester United weren't, great against Liverpool. They sort of hung on. It was more defensive errors. And they weren't great again at Southampton. Their pass completion in the second half was was 64%. They essentially brought on Casemiro to act like a kind of league catamount figure for the last 15 minutes. So, yeah, I think, I mean, a draw is is tempting with this game. I think, I think, but I do think Leicester have got as, as good a chance as winning as Manchester United did, just because they're both pretty inconsistent but they both have players who could could turn the game I think obviously team selection is a big thing for United in this one does does Eric Ten Hag give Casemiro his first start you imagine he probably will um which could probably tip the balance I guess but yeah I think I'm obviously this game's on Thursday night so it's the the only one on Thursday I think it's it's going to be uh pretty interesting one to, to keep an eye on Frank, are you tagging him as Casemiro is that his new <laughs> His new Lee Casam Casam yeah maybe yeah he just needs to pull his shorts up Casam Mole Casam Mole sounds better sounds like sounds like a Pyrenean dish but yeah okay fine sounds like something we might all be eating sounds like something we might all be eating come about January when the bills go through the roof I'll be honest with you one thing I just wanted to sort of drag a bit of little bit of attention to obviously no showboating on the show please we don't want to get anybody too uh, riled up about that but uh Kevin De Bruyne are obviously closing very much in on a uh, potential overtaking of um some Premier League assist records at the moment he's really turning in the performances and against Forest I mean I'm not expecting him to ratchet up the three that would see him match Steven Gerrard's record in one game but hey ho you never know um yeah I mean superlatives have been shared about Kevin De Bruyne quite a lot and a former Arsenal legend gave him one of the greatest comparisons I think I've heard in quite a long while about who De Bruyne could be compared to. I'm just trying to think of a player in the modern day that would really play like Paul. I suppose maybe maybe De Bruyne is, is a close fit to well Paul, Paul Casgrain would play. Paul was a bit more physical, so he'd like, the, he'd like to be physical, not, you know, get that, get that, not 
you know, the, just just that physical contact. De Bruyne is not so physical; it's more technical. But Paul could do what De Bruyne did, you know, the goals that De Bruyne makes and scores and creates. So that's the type of player he was. Good comparison. <laughs> yeah. Basically, saying Gaza was just more pigeon-chested. <laughs> I mean, yeah. De Bruyne doesn't get enough credit for his running with the ball. He does do it more than people think. You know, he people focus on his passing and shooting, but he is he's surprisingly a bit like Gascoigne, actually. Fair play, Paul Davis. Um, <laughs> it's surprisingly fast, like faster than you think. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable comparison. I mean, it's funny that Gaz has mentioned because obviously, and you mentioned the, the showboating, Graham, briefly there. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Um, no. You know, people saying, oh, but if you've not played the game, but if you haven't played the game, you're a fan, and that's the sort of thing fans remember and want to talk about for years to come. Do you remember the game when this happened? And also, Gaza did that all the time, and people love that when it's a video on YouTube of, oh, look what Gaza, the streets won't forget what Gaza did against Ipswich, or whatever it was. But now when someone does it, a contemporary player does it, it's, it's, it's a disgrace. But also, Richardson just did three keepy uppies. How <laughs> about thing? It's not like he stood on the ball and did the old Kanchelskis thing. Right. Yeah. And then you've got um, yeah, Jimmy Kevin for Reading did the pulling up the socks against West Ham United that every Reading fan still mm. remembers as like one of the great moments of their Premier League history. And I remember Nathan Tyson scoring for Wickham when he rounded the goalkeeper and the ball was sort of rolling towards the goal and he, he got down on, you know, slid along the ground and headed it in. And, uh, and the John Gorman, the wicker manager at the time, said that was disrespectful. But I, again, and then I said, "Why? Well, I don't see why it's disrespectful. It's a it's a valid way of scoring a goal." And and I remember that goal. I can't remember hardly any of his other goals because you know that's how memory works. <laughs> yeah, it was just a ridiculous overreaction. Uh, I'm I'm quite obviously not Richardson's biggest fan, as people probably found out on Twitter. Uh, a few months ago when I said that he had a lower minutes per goal ratio than Solomon Rondon um, and Andre Gray. But there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you want to see players doing that, but also equally, you want to see players crunching players that do that because it's quite funny. Yeah. So. yeah. So he maybe just checking the ball. pressure of the ball or something. <laughs> it was just great football. It was a great footballing moment. I think we can all agree on that. Right then, just to very quickly round up uh, the show today, for those who don't know, Duncan and I do produce another podcast called Stats Out of Context that uh, we've rolled through our first series of episodes. We're coming back with series two very soon, probably as we roll in towards that World Cup in the winter. But uh, one thing we would, just to give you a little flavour of it, let's have a little chat about seasons four games in, obviously, um, Mm. and sort of... You know, it's a very strange four games. Normally we get to like the third game and we roll into an international break. But this time we're we're sort of going to roll through the fourth and the fifth very quickly. And this is absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we prepared a podcast to go out after the the match day four and then very quickly realised match day five came like a day later. (laughs) Nothing to do with that at all. That's a coincidence, yeah. Just a coincidence. (laughs) But I mean, right now we're talking about tables. We're saying about how Leicester are at the bottom and, and, and such like. Has it? And I mean, there is always a case of do you wait like six games to start really talking about a league table? Mm. Where is the point that we should talk about what a league table, how it actually is going to reflect the season rather than it just being earlier than it should be? Well, there's a lot of nonsense spoken about it. Like people, you say, see some managers say, yeah, I'm not not going to look at the table till 10 games in. It's like, well, hope Scott Parker did because otherwise we'd be very confused this morning. But, um, 
but also that people kind of make out that in the olden days um that no one looked at league tables i literally if you said to someone in august or september the words league table they would be like no no i can't ever that's no not for me but i found evidence that um in 1888 the first league season the papers were publishing the, the table after two games so essentially it's never been a thing and you know as soon as teletext came out whenever that was in the 70s i guess um that had league tables after one game so it's 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 not true essentially that thing but can we can we introduce anything from i mean obviously right now everybody's talking about arsenal four wins from four incredible um if they go to make it five wins from five uh, that's only happened three times previously in their top flight history. Twice they've won the league doing that, and the other time they finished second. So, you know, nice for those sort of history fans and such like to have those sort of things. But what about after four mm. games? Like, where where do where do, where does it stand there? Uh, so, seventy six teams before this season have started with four out of four. Uh, only twenty three of them have gone on to win the title. Most recent Liverpool in 2019-20 when they pretty much won every game until they mysteriously lost. Uh, Watford, although I believe it was on February the 29th, it doesn't count uh, officially. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chelsea, when they four of their five Premier League titles have seen them start with four wins, so for them it, it's a good thing. But there's loads of teams that start with four wins and then then fade away. I mean, Matt, you might remember in 2018-19, Watford started with four wins out of four and came 11th, which is good, but obviously, you know, faded a bit. Um, even two seasons ago, Everton and Villa both started with four wins out of four. <laughs> They'd like that now. Um, and they came 10th and 11th respectively. So it is too early to uh, to sort of make judgments on where a team's going to finish. Um, like we can't say Arsenal are definitely going to win the league, but we know they're not going to get relegated because no team has ever won four out of four and, and gone down. So Arsenal are, are safe, which is which is big news from. The season Watford won four out of four. Obviously, that was the season they ended up against the FA Cup final, had the best Premier League season. The next season, Watford board obviously thought well hang on why have we not done this again because they sacked having Garcia after four games the next season so obviously wasn't good enough he stitched himself up and what happened at the end of that season don't know covid covid <laughs> <laughs> are you basically saying if having Garcia hadn't been sacked yeah covid would not have been anything <laughs> it's their fault <laughs> it's a theory what, what um, about... go on Doug no no go on well, what about other teams? Like, I mean, we're talking about four wins. Any other streaks of four that sort of bring together sort of things like, okay, have sides ever drawn four to start a season, for example? Yeah, te- there's been 10 instances of four draws, which is kind of, I guess, the is that the worst start to a season? At least if you're losing, you can build up a sort of head of steam of hatred, I guess, with the with the fan or the board. Um, four draws, yeah, the only team to go down after drawing the opening four games are Palace back in 1993, when, back in the era when they just did always go down every time they got to the to the top flight. Um, there was Wolves in 1947-48, they scored 20 goals in their first four games, um, which is even better than Liverpool this season, but they came fifth, so it didn't really count for that much in the end, didn't even get a Europa League spot it didn't exist so um yeah i think you know it is very early in the season obviously by the, the end of today some teams will have played five so we're rattling through the games and um i think that's probably the bigger the bigger thing really i think there's there are some parallels with with two seasons ago when that was the season that started behind closed doors and we're still in the the midst of covid and you remember obviously liverpool lost to to villa um and it's interesting because then 
they lost to well, they drew at Everton, didn't they? But that was the game that Van Dyke got injured in it, sort of really derailed their season. Liverpool have got obviously at the weekend where Everton again. So I always think every Premier League season has a kind of mirror. So, so there's always a couple of seasons that kind of are quite similar. And it does so far this this season does feel quite sort of 2020, 21 to me. But um, as we say, it's, it's quite early. Well, we covered exactly. Tom Hancock's piece earlier in the season, covered as also like the first five games. If you if you win eight or more points, that seems to be the golden number, doesn't it? That your chances of staying up have, have dramatically increased. Um, that doesn't help teams like Bournemouth, who in your first five games play Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal. Um, mm. But it feels like, especially if you're a newly promoted team or a team that are perceived to be a struggling team, if you've done well in that first four games, it usually coincides with just a few days before the end of the transfer window. Yeah. So you're either able to bring in a better quality of player because players will probably go, well, actually, they're probably not going to go down if they do, they've started really well. Or if you're a bigger club that's struggling after those four games, that is when those teams sort of panic by, don't they, and, and bring in players. I remember Arsenal that season, they brought in Mertesacker. Um, I think they brought four players. Benny in Arteta, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that can the first four games feels like it really does shape your season based on the transfer window now. Yeah, and just to bring it back round to what we started talking about today, um, in that list of managers to go early in the season was Alan Kerbishley at West Ham. Um, and bizarrely, he has never properly managed a club since since 2008 when he left there. But obviously, he was at Charlton before. In 2005-06, Charlton started with four wins out of four. Um, and that season was was interesting because they were still pretty high up around Christmas, but they really fell away after that. And, you know, Kerbishley basically resigned because the fans had got sort of fed up. And they were, I remember there was a sort of, you know, we need to establish ourselves and get into the UEFA Cup on a regular basis. Um, it's kind of careful what you wish for because, you know, since then it's it's been a, a slow fading away for Charlton. But um, so, yeah, it's I think if you're a club like Arsenal this season, Four wins out of four probably suggests that, yeah, you might have a reasonable title bid. But when it is, say, a Charlton or a Watford, it, you know, you should probably just be grateful that you've got 12 points that on the board that early. Um, and it does give you some, you know, some security. And I guess... Yeah, it's more like yeah. we've got 12 points of the 40 needed. <laughs> yeah. Ticks off, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, we talk about transfer window. Obviously, it closes 11 o'clock Thursday night. So probably not helpful for someone like Manchester United, who obviously play the Thursday night. So if it all of a sudden it is a disaster, for example, say there's a major injury occurs Thursday, <laughs> they haven't got a lot of time to maybe dash around and run and try and fix something. But say something... Got an hour. Yeah. Get that fax machine. <laughs> They'll only be able to sign Leicester players. <laughs> please, can I... anyone join us? I think even if it if it wasn't plugged in, it would be pretty cool to have a fax machine on the bench next to the manager, just as a sort of like you know we're you know, we're uh, we're working out what to do here. We're gonna yeah, we can do a transfer mid game if needs be. So maybe, maybe fax machines as a whole are going to make a huge comeback because maybe they're cheaper to run than desktop computers and email servers. So maybe we're about to you know really embrace the old times again with Amstrad email phone for me. But yeah. <laughs> Alan Sugar rubbing his hands. <laughs> well, I don't quite know where to go from there. So I think there's only one thing we can do, and that's uh, try and wrap up today's show. Uh, thanks very much for joining us as ever. If you aren't able to catch us live or you're watching us on repeat, then make sure you can also download to our 
podcast feed where we upload the show and is also where we host Stats Out of Context when it makes its glorious return for season two very soon. There's loads of great content as ever over on the analyst, as we mentioned at the start of today's show. You can go and check out the earliest Premier League sackings piece that is now live on the site, as well as the latest Premier League predictions. The stats hubs are all up to date as well, so you can dive in and have a look around all the great data that we have online for you too. And don't forget to head over to our social media channels. You've got us on Instagram, you've got us on TikTok, and you've got us on Twitter. All of them at Opta Analyst. But for now, enjoy another Madcap Week in Premier League football. We'll be back at the end of the week, no doubt. Looking forward to match day six. But until then, on behalf of Duncan and Matt, thanks very much for tuning in, and we'll catch you again soon. Take care.